Now let's turn together this evening to the scriptures as we read from the Gospel of Mark in chapter 15. The Gospel of Mark, chapter 15. And we have come tonight to the section from verse 33 to 41. Mark 15, verses 33 to 41, the account of the death of Jesus. And we approach this with reverent hearts and, as it were, with bated breath this evening as Mark reveals to us something of the awesomeness of these events. At the sixth hour, darkness came over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, Lama, Sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing near heard this, they said, listen, he's calling Elijah. One man ran, filled a sponge with, a sponge with wine vinegar, put it on a stick, and offered it to Jesus to drink. Leave him alone now. Let's see if Elijah comes to take him down, he said. With a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood there in front of Jesus heard his cry and saw how he died, he said, surely this man was the Son of God. Some women were watching from a distance. Among them were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, the younger, and of Joseph, and Salome. In Galilee, these women had followed him and cared for his needs. Many other women who had come up with him to Jerusalem were also there. The Lord will bless to our understanding and to his glory this reading of his own word. Now we are continuing on these Sunday evenings our studies in this great chapter of Mark's Gospel, the 15th chapter. And last Sunday evening we had begun to come together to the very center and the very apex of the gospel message as we have it according to Mark. And it is simply remarkable that in these events of the shame and the suffering and the sheer horror of Golgotha and Calvary, we should come to the very highest point of the gospel, the very center of the good news that Mark is proclaiming. And I wonder if you read with me this evening this passage in that light, remembering that we are not saved by Jesus' teaching, concerning which Mark has taken us through many examples of it in the preceding chapters of the gospel. And you have thought that we are not saved by Jesus' miracles, marvelous and varied as these were. And we are not saved even by the example of Jesus, wonderful as this has 
has seemed to be to us through all the accounts and narratives of the Gospel of Mark. But we are saved by this great transaction of Calvary, the transaction of the cross, for which all the other things have been a necessary preliminary and preparation. And as we come to this passage this evening with all its beauty and its solemnity and its awesomeness for us, we need to remember that this is the culmination and the great climax of all the ministry of Jesus. But all of the life of Jesus, all of his perfect obedience to his heavenly Father, all of the gracious teaching that fell from his lips, all of the wonderful example of his patience with sinners and his being made so often the subject of their ignominy and their criticism, all of this wonderful life of Jesus bearing and forbearing the contradiction of sinners is gathered up and brought to its great conclusion in the offering of himself upon the cross of Calvary. And we need to remember this as we begin to look this evening at the very center of the sufferings of Jesus. But there was his active obedience in his life, in perfect conformity to God's will. And there is here supremely on the cross his passive obedience, as with this life of perfect conformity to God's will and law, he offers himself in suffering for the sins of his chosen people. Now we saw last Sunday evening that in these events there is the sovereignty of God and there is the suffering of Jesus, the God-man, that leads inevitably and gloriously to the salvation of God's people. But tonight, as we consider this further section of the chapter, I want to explore it in a different way with you, that we may see together that the soul of Jesus' suffering and obedience on the cross, the soul of his suffering, was the suffering of his soul. And so I want you to consider with me out of a passage that is simply awesome in its dimensions for three things that I believe stand out in our reading this evening. The darkness that came down over the whole land, the desertion of Jesus that this darkness spoke of. And then as we seek to peer into the mystery that is so incomprehensible to us of what Jesus underwent on the cross, I want you to consider with me the difficulties of understanding what happened to him there. First then, I want you with me to think of the darkness that is spoken of in verse 33. Mark tells us that there came down a darkness upon the whole land at the sixth hour, and it lasted until the ninth hour. Now we've seen already the awful events that brought Jesus to this experience of the cross, the betrayal at the hand of Judas, the fleeing of the disciples who had promised in their zeal to stand with him. 
We have seen the trial before the Jews and the Romans, both of them filled with injustice and inequities of every kind. We have seen our Savior led forth bound to be scourged by the brutal and cruel Roman soldiers. We have seen him standing in Pilate's judgment hall, presented to the people who began to shout, Crucify him! Crucify him! And we saw last Sunday evening, you recall, the final indignity of this treatment that was meted out to the sinless Son of God, the awful horrors of a Roman crucifixion. And you see, superficially up to this point, we might look at all that has happened to Jesus and is happening to him and say that all of this can be attributed to human factors. At the hands of men he has been delivered. At the hands of men he has suffered. At the hands of men he has been cruelly crucified upon the cross. But if we had been in any doubt about the divine purpose in this, the sovereignty of God that we spoke of last Sunday evening. Now at this point, any thought of merely human hands in this event is taken from us as the darkness descends supernaturally upon the whole land. And if we ever wanted, beloved, an evidence of God being in this thing and his sovereignty arranging for the suffering of his son, it is here as darkness for three long hours covers the land in silence. Now I want to emphasize this evening that it was a supernatural act at the very brightest time of the day, you notice, at midday, the sixth hour, according to the Roman reckoning, the darkness suddenly came down like a thick blanket over all the land. And at the time when there are no shadows normally upon the ground, all is shadow and all is deepest blackness. As black as midnight was the land. And there is no natural explanation for this. It was not an eclipse of the sun because we know this was Passover time and the moon was at its fullness. And no, no eclipse is possible in terms of natural events. And therefore the question before us is why this darkness upon the land? Well, let me say this, that for the onlookers it certainly had one meaning, and for the Lord Jesus it also was pregnant with meaning for him. For the onlookers, think of what this meant, the rough soldiers that had scourged him so brutally and mocked him as the pretender king for his enemies as they stood there in the crowd hurling insults at him. If you are indeed the Son of God, they said, Come down from the cross if you are the king of Israel. And for these bitter, hate-filled men, surely this darkness at the very brightest time of day must have ushered into their inmost souls a sense of fear of the unknown, even a sense of the fear of God. 
as it left that great sufferer upon the cross in quietness. But I think the meaning is more than this. You see, no human eye could possibly have borne to look upon the anguished visage of the Son of God as he bore on the cross the very pains of hell itself. And I wonder if you've ever considered this as you think of that event. But as he bore that immense weight of human sin, in all its inexpressible agony and anguish, no human eye could have borne to look upon the victim there in all the immensity and infinity of his sufferings. As he tasted hell for his people. I wonder if you remember with sufficient clarity that this was eternal torment that entered into the soul of Jesus there. Into those three hours were compressed an eternity of suffering that was yet to be. And there was wrung out into the cup that our Savior drank upon the cross that infinity of the consequences of human sin that you and I would otherwise have had to taste to the full. And as you consider this, beloved, no wonder that darkness covered the land. For no human eye could ever behold the infinite sorrows of the Son of God. But you see, for him, secondly, surely this darkness had another, another import and another meaning. And very simply, if I may put it to you this way, very simply, God is light. And what this darkness surely says to us is this, that God had gone. And I want you to think of it for a moment in that way. We need to explore this for a moment and reverently and carefully and biblically Look at what this darkness meant and conveyed to Jesus. God is light. And God had gone, forsaken his own dearly beloved son. Now there can be no possible doubt that this is the meaning of that darkness for Jesus. That he was forsaken. But in what sense was he forsaken? We must be so careful here. You see, we cannot say for one moment that there was a schism within the Godhead. That God the Father was cut off from God the Son. And that God the Holy Spirit was cut off from God the Son. For then the Trinity would be sundered. A thing that is simply biblically and theologically impossible. And therefore there could have been no schism in the blessed Trinity of God, within the Godhead. And we see this, don't we, in that Jesus, out of that infinite experience of loneliness, still cried out in the blackness of darkness, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? 
that relationship with his father was still intact, you see. Just as some time before in John chapter 10 verse 17, he said, Therefore doth my father love me because I lay down my life that I might take it again. And at the same time that we say in this darkness that came into the soul of Jesus that there was no schism in the Trinity, in the Godhead, we must also say that there was no schism between his manhood and his Godhead. It is not as some have supposed that God forsook Jesus there and left him alone in the manhood to suffer because we know that that would have been impossible. It was his very divinity, his deity, his Godhead that strengthened his frail humanity and enabled him to bear this awful weight of the sins of a world undone. And without that divinity strengthening his humanity, no work of our salvation could ever have been possible. He, therefore, the God-man, was offering himself on the cross for our sins. And you see, it is a deep mystery into which the human mind cannot plumb an incomprehensibility about the sufferings of Jesus in that he was forsaken and the light of his Father's presence was taken from him and he felt the utter loneliness of the abandonment of the damned in hell and yet he did so in the consciousness that his father loved him to the uttermost and in the consciousness that his divine nature was upholding him in all these infinite sufferings that he endured. And I think we need to remember this evening as John Murray has reminded us in his collected writings that love and wrath are not contradictory but love and hatred are. And Jesus was loved by his Father, and yet the wrath of the Father rested upon him by divine appointment. But there was no separation in his two natures, nor in the nature of God himself. And as John Murray reminds us, the mystery of mysteries in the atonement of our Savior, is that God in our nature was forsaken of God. And my dear friends, as you think of that darkness for them and for Him, surely it must fill us with a spirit of thankfulness this evening and a spirit of awe as we look at this cross and we say that what happened here was not a little thing. It is not a little dealing with Jesus, beloved, that brings the soul into a right relationship with God. Here is an infinity, an incomprehensibility of the sufferings of Jesus as he tasted for us the very pains of hell itself. And oh, what thankfulness should enter into our spirits as we say, but it was for me he suffered thus. Alas, and did my Savior bleed? And did my Sovereign die? Did he devote his sacred head for such 
a worm as I, was it for crimes that I had done? He groaned upon the tree, amazing pity, grace unknown, and love beyond degree. And as we think of that darkness, we are bound, aren't we? That our minds should be led on to think of that blackness of darkness, which is reserved for all the obstinate unbelievers, as Jude tells us in verse 13 of his epistle, who will enter into the blackness of darkness forever and ever. This was the darkness that our surety endured for us in those three hours upon the cross. The immensity of it, those endless ages of separation from God and the wrath of God resting on sinners, compressed into the cup of Jesus, so that in three hours on the cross, he took it all and bore it all and satisfied for it all and gave the cry at the end in triumph, It is finished. And how thankful then we are for the claims of darkness and the chains of darkness that shall bind all who reject him forevermore have been broken for all who in Christ have become new creations. Now I want you to notice with me secondly that there was not only darkness but in this account there is also desertion and we see this so clearly in verse 34, and at the ninth hour, Mark reminds us, Jesus cried out in Aramaic, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And surely this is a mystery before which we stand amazed and aghast, As John Murray has put it to us, God in our nature, forsaken by God. And if we ever needed a further confirmation beyond all doubt of the purpose of Christ's death, it is surely in this cry. And in the cry that followed it, three hours later, as the darkness began to lift, tetelestai, Jesus said in Greek, it is finished. And these two cries, I believe, show us, as I say, beyond all measure of doubt, that there upon the cross, Jesus, in every real measure, had gone to hell for us and for our salvation. And there are two things that I want to share with you about this desertion, this cry of Jesus. First, it surely shows us how terrible is sin. In that the Son of God himself was deserted and abandoned by his Father as he bore that load of sin that was not his own. Beloved, no one was ever so alone as Jesus was in these hours upon the cross. Have you thought of it thus? Men did not want him. They hoisted him up on the tree. No angel came to strengthen him as he was strengthened at the beginning of his ministry 
in the wilderness when the angels ministered to him and when again an angel of God strengthened him in the garden of the agony as he sweated there upon the cold ground those great drops of blood. And the psalmist, you recall, had written many centuries before, I have never seen the righteous forsaken, nor his seed begging bread. But Jesus was forsaken. And you and I on occasion have felt ourselves forsaken of God, but this has never really been so, because we have known his promise coming to us in the course of time and saying, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Yet here on the cross, the Holy One and the Righteous One and the Sinless One and the Altogether Perfect One was forsaken of God. And I want to remind you this evening that because of his very sinlessness and the perfection of his nature, he felt far more acutely than we can ever feel the enormity of that desertion of the Father whom he loved and served to the utmost. He felt it in a more terrible sense than we could ever have felt it had it happened to us because of the very sensitivity of his human nature finely tuned to every motion of his Father's hand, every word of his Father's lips, since he always did those things that pleased the Father. And when you and I think of the scene in Matthew 25, when Jesus, you recall, said to those on his left hand, Depart ye cursed into everlasting fire, that has been prepared for the devil and his angels. Or when you think again of John 3, verse 16, for God so loved the world that whoever believes in him should not perish. Whatever eternal banishment into the fires of hell may mean, and whatever perishing may mean in John 3, verse 16, these are the things that our Savior endured when he was forsaken of God. And I want you to see, therefore, how terrible is human sin in all its consequences. But the second thing is how awful is the punishment of man's guilt. I was reading as I prepared for this exposition this evening in some words of Dr. John Duncan, one of the famous leaders of the Reformed Church in my own land of Scotland, Rabbi Duncan, as he was known, because he was a Hebrew professor in the New College in Edinburgh. And he was commenting to his students on one occasion about the suffering of Jesus from Matthew 27, a parallel passage to ours this evening, and this is what he said. I, I, he said, do you know what it meant? That dying on the cross, forsaken of his father, do you know what it meant? He said to his students. What, what? 
it was damnation, and damnation taken lovingly. And the person who recorded that event says this, and he, Dr. Duncan, subsided into his chair, leaning a little to one side, his head very straight and stiff, his arms hanging down on either side of the chair where he sat, with the light beaming from his face and tears coursing down his cheeks as he repeated in a low and intense voice that broke into a half-sob, It was damnation, and he took it lovingly. And, oh, my friend, if we are to see anything this evening in the sufferings of our Savior, it is surely that we are to see that he took damnation lovingly, the consequences of our sins. And you and I tonight should meditate upon that agony of the Holy Son of God when all darkness veiled his suffering from human sight, when all the sin of the world was heaped upon the spotless soul of our Savior, when he felt himself reckoned guilty, though he was without sin, when he felt his Father's countenance utterly turned away and withdrawn from him in that hour. And we should meditate upon it and we should say to ourselves that the agony of that season for our Savior was past human understanding altogether. The seriousness of sin, the awful consequences to which it led him. Now thirdly, as I draw toward a conclusion, there is not only the darkness in our passage and the desertion, but there are the difficulties that it presents as we have seen to our understanding. And we must say that if we had only human knowledge and no divine revelation to guide us in our understanding of the cross, we would be forever in the darkness as those men that stood by were in the darkness with the sense that something awesome, something inexplicable in human terms was happening. But we would live forever, wouldn't we, in our ignorance. Because, you see, if we said that our Savior suffered only as the supreme example of self-sacrifice and self-denial, we would have a problem and a difficulty. And the problem would be simply this, how can we ever imitate him? If he is the Son of God and possessed of every perfection, how could we ever imitate him if all that happened on the cross was an example to inspire us to love our enemies and be patient in tribulation. And moreover, we need God's presence and power to be able to suffer unjustly, to be able to forgive our enemies. And when we look at the experience of Jesus on the cross, this presence and power of God was denied him. 
So why should he leave us an example that we cannot possibly follow? In fact, if the explanation of Jesus' suffering is only that he is a martyr and the greatest of all men and the supreme example to us, we must look at other martyrs and other examples of suffering and say, and I say this reverently, but they bore it with greater equanimity than Jesus did. Did he not cry out from the cross in agony, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And that cry, Eloi, Eloi, forever destroys the idea that Christ suffered only as a pattern for us to follow. And it is Dr. George Smeaton who says the Lord Jesus asks why with a force and significance which brings us to the verge of the inscrutable. It may be wiser, he says, to stand and adore than to grope our way into the meaning of this why. But there is only one answer as I have shared it with you already. One answer in Calvary, and that is that the demand of justice was met by the provision of love. Let me say that again. The demands of God's justice were met by the provision of his love. And let me take you away from that awful scene of three crosses on the raised up hill the shape of which was in the shape of a skull, and the awful darkness and the silenced crowd, and the agony of our Savior, and stand instead in the place of John the Apostle, in the apocalypse who saw that great multitude that no man could number, whose unnumbered sins, he says, have all been wiped out and taken away, but they are no longer reckoned to their account. And only so, because of Jesus, the Lamb of God, who hung upon the accursed tree. For John says, I saw one who was like a lamb in appearance, wounded, as John saw him there, in his hands and his feet, the one who has borne away the accursed load from the people of God. And the justice of God, you see, demanded that that sacrifice be paid. But since our sins deserved eternal death, then the Eternal One must suffer for them. And what justice demanded, God's love provided. The beloved Son of God, see him there on Calvary, forsaken. Was it for sins that I had done? He hung upon the tree. Amazing pity, grace divine, and love beyond degree. See him, the sinless one, treated as if he were the worst sinner in the world, as though he was the compendium of all the sinners who have ever lived and ever will live to time's end. 
that we, through his atoning sacrifice, might become the righteousness of God in him. See him who was God from all eternity in loneliness, that we might have the fellowship of being the Father's children, the beloved of God forsaken, the sinless one made guilty, the eternal God in loneliness. And when we see these things and their counterpart, we see the true interpretation of Calvary and Golgotha. Now let me say then, in conclusion only this, that Christ became a curse that we might be blessed with all spiritual blessings in him. Was there darkness for him? It was so that there might be light for us. The light of God's word, beloved, is so clear, isn't it? Why do so many walk still in their darkness of ignorance, in their impenitence? Why is it that so few will come to him? And if you are those among those in that condition, I say to you, pray from your heart this evening, Lord, give me good understanding in these things. Lord, lighten my darkness. Lord, break the hardness of my heart and take away the impenitence of my mind and show me indeed how I may receive my sight and see Jesus taking damnation lovingly for me. And if you are a believer here this evening, let this be a comfort to you as I close. But surely that season of forsakenness for our Savior tells us that for us in the Christian life, there may be seasons of similar forsakenness for ourselves. Times when we feel the light of God's countenance withdrawn, the comfort of his spirit taken from us, the direction of his word no longer clearly seen. And these seasons do not mean that God has abandoned us, that he does not love us. Love and wrath, love and discipline are not contradictory. Love and hatred are. And for us, though not for Jesus, in that awful experience of Calvary, there is light in our sufferings. There is a sense in which we will know that God has not abandoned us. And that light will shine again and that comfort will return and that season of blessedness will be ours once more. And all those difficulties that bestrew our way, the obstacles that stand against us, the temptations that encompass us, there will be an end to them and God sovereignly will bring us out of them. Therefore, I say to you, believer, this evening, who feel yourself forsaken of God for a time, that you are still beloved in him. 
So may God bless to each one of us this word from one of the most awesome passages of the gospel as we have seen Jesus taking damnation for us so lovingly. Let's pray. Our Father, tonight, as we have stood before this passage, bless its counsel to our hearts, revive our spirits, enlarge our minds, and make the faculty of our understanding so dim, yet brighter, as we think and meditate upon those wondrous doings of our Savior upon the cross, for us men and our salvation, that we in turn might rejoice humbly in him, for his name's sake. Amen.